Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to talk about a story that I think needs far more attention than it's getting. And you may want to weigh in on it. So you can do that, of course, 905-645-3221. I always enjoy calls, whether you agree or disagree with me. But the issue is pay for access. What is it? And why should you care? I'll tell you why you should care. Uh, because essentially it's when politicians allow fundraising opportunities to connect with special interests. So businesses and unions, you know, it's not illegal, but it sure stinks to high heaven. I think it's very unethical. Uh, earlier in the summer, I, I did a number of shows. You'll recall when the Ontario Liberals got themselves into trouble over this very thing, because it was revealed they were pulling in tens of thousands of dollars in fundraising fees at events where star MPPs were appearing with special interest groups eagerly paying to get some time with them. So businesses that were doing business with the government were getting FaceTime. And so this blew up for Kathleen Wynne, and essentially it forced her to change the rules and stop the practice. Of course, not until they got their trough full of money, but essentially they had to change the fundraising practice. And to be fair, I will point out that it's it's not the liberals that just do this. Other parties do this. The PCs have done this. The conservatives have done this. The difference, I think, uh, that we look in it is that the liberals are in charge, both federally and provincially. So when they're doing it, they're the actual policymakers. So that's kind of the ick factor. And I'm not sure why, but it seems the federal liberals are ignoring this scandal. I mean, they certainly had red flags to look at, but they're igno- ignoring the scandal in Ontario. And they're doing it despite the fact that its party's own rules are very strict against this kind of things. So for weeks, Prime Minister Trudeau insisted that this was not happening, that, you know, fundraising wasn't being done with MPs and that there was no access given. He denied, denied, denied. And then this week, we saw a completely different turn. He admitted that he's been approached by lobbyists, but, but, but. It doesn't influence him. Nope, doesn't influence him. And then on Tuesday, he said that the pay for access events are all done, all done with the middle class in mind. So he's doing this for you, middle class. Yeah, buying that? Mm. Please, Mr. Speaker, to rise today to reassure Canadians that the federal level uh, of, uh, in terms of political financing has among the, hard, the strongest and most rigorous rules in the country. Uh, that allows for openness, transparency, accountability that can reassure and reinforce Canadians' confidence uh, because those rules have always been and will always be followed uh, by our party. In other words, blah, 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 spin, spin, spin. I mean, come on, really? Um, I got to ask, you know, is this going to take the shine off the prime minister? Uh, Recent polls suggest that Canadians don't like this. 67% say pay for access is wrong. So why is Trudeau continuing to do this? Let's bring in someone who can hopefully answer these questions. John Iveson is a columnist for the National Post, someone I say is essential reading for all of you because uh, he's one of the few that kind of takes these issues and runs with them and has done a very good job about that. Hi, John. Good to have you. Hi there. How are you? Good. Thank you. So let's talk about this little um, issue of pay for access and how big of a problem it might get for our prime minister. Well, as you mentioned, the polls uh, are suggesting that the shine has come off the Liberals a little bit. I mean, it's only one poll, but it showed uh, from 51 to to a still lofty 42%. Um, So something is uh, causing that that dip in support. 
And I think it's this. I mean, I think that um, they came in, you know, as you mentioned, other parties have done this. But they didn't, the other parties didn't come in uh, claiming that they would maintain Olympian standards of ethical behavior and, and lay out an open and accountable government framework for everybody to see, which specifically mentions that there should be no uh, privileged access for people, particularly when they're paying paying a lot of dollars. So it you know it it doesn't sit well with their own guidelines. They seem to have driven a coach and horses through those guidelines. To me, it actually breaches the Conflict of Interest Act, and uh, it seems uh, very fortunate for the Liberals that the Ethics Commissioner is a particularly uh, tame watchdog. Uh, it's not clear yet whether this the Ethics Commissioner is applying, reapplying for her own job. Um, she won't answer the question as to whether she's uh, seeking an extension or a new contract, which would clearly put her in a con- conflict yeah. of interest herself if she was, because uh, uh, the, the the conflict of interest act seems to prohibit the solicitation of uh, of, of funds in this manner. Uh, she claims that it doesn't apply to political behaviour, so she can't get involved. But whether it's against the law or even against the guidelines is almost immaterial because any Canadians looking closely at this can tell that it's not right. And it seems inexplicable to me that the Liberal Party cannot see that for themselves, or if they can, that they're just ignoring it. Well, well, look, they had a very big preview of this kind of thing in Ontario with the Liberals, where Kathleen Wynne had to change the rules. I mean, right. it, it blew up, um, and they were lucky that people were on vacation and not paying attention, but it got a lot of attention. So, you know, these two governments are very um, close. They know each other. They would have known that these kinds of things would have been going on. So why wouldn't they take a page from the Ontario Liberals and say, hey, this is going to get us into trouble? Or are they that wrapped in a bubble that they, they aren't noticing this? No, they, they, I spoke to senior people about why don't you just do what Ontario did? And they say that they, they felt, um, you know, that the Ontario government was in a similar ethical bind. They felt that they were buffeted by bad press into making changes that will make things worse, that will push political fundraising into the back rooms where lobbying companies will wield undue influence. Um, I don't buy that particularly, uh, in that it seems that it would be hard to hard to see how it could, could get worse than, than a fundraiser being organized at somebody's private home, people paying $1,500 to have FaceTime with the Prime Minister, and then apparently they're, whatever it is they were lobbying for actually happens. That's, the optics of that are terrible. But let's say that um, the, the, the federal government decides not to do what Ontario does. Well, that doesn't limit it to doing nothing. I think that they could quite easily do what the NDP is suggesting. The NDP has said it will bring in a private member's bill that will introduce into legislation the ethical guidelines that the Liberals themselves wrote. So it's a little bit devious from the NDP's point of view because they wanted to dare the Liberals to vote against their own open and accountable government rules. But clearly, if if you put that in legislation, it would outlaw what is going on right now. Right. Uh, Trudeau suggests, though, that you'd have to be pretty cynical uh, to suggest that he's doing this for any other reason than for Canadians. And, I mean, does he actually think people buy that? I mean, he he's done a terrible job of messaging this thing. And I think it's fair to point out that there are several members of the Liberal Party behind the scenes that are very uncomfortable that this is going on and driving the narrative. Does he just not get it? Or does he think that if he sticks to his messaging, that this will kind of just all go away and, and you know, become a part of just conversation? Well, I think that they, they you know, when I use the, the word buffeted by 
bad press to describe what the interior government did. And this government is determined not to be buffeted by bad press on anything. And this is really the first round of bad press they've really had to deal with in a serious fashion. So I think that they're, part of it is just bloody-mindedness. They don't want to do it. Um, but, you know, it's starting to hit them. I mean, I, I do think it's it's uh, the shine is coming off. The, the people who voted for them um, see that there's an element of hypocrisy here. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the narrative is changing. I mean, that, this, I was in the press theatre the other day when he admitted that the lobbying is taking place. Now, the defence of Liberal spokespeople for, for weeks is that no lobbying took place. So when, once they, they, it starts crumbling, the defence starts crumbling, then I think that they're going to be obliged to take action. Sure, but the, the lucky thing for Mr. Trudeau, the good news is that uh, they're on break now for the holidays. Right. He barely shows up to question period as it is. So does this issue, and we know that when it came to the, the Senate scandal for Stephen Harper, that didn't go away. It stayed with him for years. Yep. Is this the kind of issue, John, that stays um, when guys like you, Robert Fife, some of the more senior levels uh, of, of journalism are writing about it? Does this issue stay in the headlines? Well, I think it does if they keep doing it, for sure. I mean, you know, we're, we're, they don't put out press releases saying these things are going to happen. Yeah. But inevitably we find out about them because they have to publicize them to get people to come. So, you know, if they keep doing them, we will keep writing about them and it will continue to be an issue because I think it's just so brazen. I mean, if you remember back, it happened, the first one that really yeah. got the headlines was uh, Jody Wilson-Ribold, the uh, justice minister, going to uh, uh, a Bay Street law firm that actually lobbied her department uh, for a $500 head fundraiser. Now, we all wrote about it. We couldn't quite believe that they, they were doing it, but we assumed it was a, a one-off or it was something that would discontinue as the, as the, the, the government uh, started getting into its tracks. It got worse, and they're, and they're raising an awful lot of money about it. I mean, they're you know, let's face it, the reason they're, they're taking these risks with their own popularity is because they are amassing a pretty serious war chest here. And they may decide that, well, it's worth taking the, the hit because when the elect, next election comes around, we're going to be so well off, we're going to be able to steamroll the opposition. So if that's the political calculation, um, I think they're misguided because I think this is really, it goes to the heart of their brand. Sure. Which is, uh, and, and the Liberals for decades have been vulnerable to this idea that they're, that they're uh, you know, I call it a political immunodeficiency disorder for the Liberal Party, that they, this is just the, the arrogance of catering, pandering to elites and people with money. Yeah, so if you had issues with Stephen Harper, with the hidden agendas and doing all this kind of shady stuff, then you should not be comfortable with uh, Justin Trudeau, who appears to be doing uh, the same. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, where this goes, because as you say, they're amassing quite a war chest, but it's going to take one misstep, and then he's got yet like an ad scam scandal following him or a Senate scandal like that that plagued Mr. Harper. Um, and we've already seen that he, he may have crossed, in fact, a line by meeting face-to-face and admitting that he's been approached by lobbyists. Well, I, I think that the public gives politicians the benefit of the doubt for a, for a certain period of time. And I think the Senate scandal uh, was the point where Harper lost the benefit of the doubt. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd sailed through, even through the 2011 election, um, where a lot of this, the, 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 the stuff that you would thought, I mean, I remember Michael Ignatius saying you would have thought that proroguing Parliament and all these abuses that, that clearly took place would hurt his popularity and mean he lost the next election. Well, he, well, he didn't, because the 
public still gave him the benefit of the doubt because they felt he was doing a reasonable job in the economy. So what, I'm not suggesting yeah. that, that Trudeau has lost the benefit of the doubt yet, but it, this is a, 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 a gradual erosion. It takes a long time before politicians do lose the benefit of the doubt, but this is, this is one of the things that will cause people to, to think twice about voting Liberal again. Sure. And then you've got the issues like the Electoral College, you know, the, the mess that has been made of this whole, you know, changing of the vote. Uh, Mariam Monsef has gotten herself in an awful lot of trouble, and a lot of people are, are you know, doubting the process as to what's going to happen. Are we changing the way we vote? Are we not? That's a mess that I think will continue into 2017. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, Mr. Trudeau is going to finally at some point meet Mr. Trump. And I think he's going to be challenged in a way that uh, he's not quite prepared for because both countries seem to be going in a completely different uh, direction. Well, I think that 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 is the story for the the new year. If the story this year was energy, uh, energy and the environment and, and then laterally cash for access... Next year, it's how how uh, the Trudeau government responds to Trump and and the inevitable um, problems that result when when you put on a carbon tax in, in yeah. Canada and they don't in the U.S. and in fact they reduce corporate income taxes and, and personal taxes. Um, you know, Canada's going to have to respond to that. that. I think that's a huge a huge issue. The one sleeper issue as well that I think that's not quite uh, come out in the wash yet is. Uh, the impact of the, the the government's changes to the housing market, yeah. which um, we don't see it in the numbers yet. In fact, I'm just looking at my screen here and housing prices. I, I've are still seen going it up. because I was just in the housing um, market trying to buy, and and you're already seeing the effects as a consumer that uh, the the changes that they've made, John, are pushing um, everybody down into a category. So everyday people are are uh, competing all for the same product, and they can't afford it. Right. Well, I think that, that we we don't really know what's yeah. what's happening there yet because uh, if you remember, the changes came in October mm-hmm. and then people piled into the market because they were grandfathered and they could still get mortgages under the old rules. So, uh, talking to experts experts in that field, we won't know really know what's happening until February time. Yeah. And but if we're if you know millennial Canadians have been shut out of the housing market, and you know, they're the, one of the key voting sectors that, that brought Trudeau in. Then that, that starts to hurt him. And, and the message that people like Kevin O'Leary are putting out, you know, you're not, it, it doesn't matter about anything else. If by the time of the next election, uh, there's no wage inflation, so people aren't, seeing, aren't better off, uh, youth unemployment is still massive, so that kids are still living in their parents' basements, mm-hmm. and the value of your home, the crucial value of your home, is either down or stagnant, then all the selfies and... and uh, sunny ways in the world will not persuade you to vote liberal. So a lot of big issues that are that are going to challenge the, the liberals next year, but cash for access will rumble on nonetheless unless they get it sorted. Death by a thousand cups. John, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank John you. John Iverson, of course, you can read in the National Post. And I want to quickly squeak in this call. Andy, you got like 20 seconds. Yes, I think there's an alternative and an open way to raise money for different parties, and that's to have more tra- industrial trade shows. You could have your little booth there with a uh, PC party or a liberal party. You could have the prime minister or the premier speak on different issues. Have more trade shows so people can go and see what's going on. It's wide open, and you could donate if you want. That's the way it should be done. Thank you for the suggestion. Sorry, thanks for the suggestion. We'll see if they pick it up. But uh, somehow I don't think that's going to happen. Look, politicians, all you need to do is not go and lobby at these things. How about that? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. If you're a patient in the healthcare system because you're probably waiting 
and waiting and waiting for treatment. But you're also not getting satisfaction if you're a doctor. They're not happy. And I would uh, go as far as saying a battle which has been brewing is now on a full-on war. Uh, Thousands of doctors are arguing and have been for some time that the province has been burying them in red tape instead of addressing these critical care issues that really, you know, affect you as a patient. A new surprise tentative agreement was offered up by the province Wednesday. It kind of came out of nowhere. And it surprised doctors who have been at odds with the province and who already rejected a similar deal earlier in the summer. Ontario Medical Association, which represents the province's doctors, argues that the agreement doesn't address fundamental issues or doctors' concerns. And so, and and, and I've heard it. You've probably heard it too when you go to your doctor. I went to my son's pediatrician yesterday and I saw my own doctor last week and both of them, both of them said, we are dealing with so much bureaucracy and red tape and and layers of, of, you know, process that we can't actually get to treating people. So then you sit in the waiting room and wait and wait. And doctors now feel that they're really being disrespected and... They go further saying that the province has, you know, politicized this issue. And so it was interesting because the Ontario Medical Association came out yesterday saying all options are now on the table. So what does that mean? Because doctors in this province cannot strike. They're not allowed to. They're an essential service. So let's find out. Nadia Alam joins us now. She's with Concerned Ontario Doctors, which, uh, Nadia, is a grassroots effort put together by you um, and other doctors and really... You've got huge numbers, but you're fighting against the province for what you truly believe in. I'm glad to have you with us. Thank you very much, Alex, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. So I want to kind of break this down because it's really easy and and it's a confusing issue for the everyday person who's just going about their business. But essentially, the provincial government, Dr. Eric Hoskins, came out yesterday with a a surprise announcement of a deal, a tentative deal that they think is fair uh, for doctors. And uh, as I understand it, an hour later, they then went to the media to discuss it when doctors hadn't even seen what the details were. Absolutely. The only board bureau had any time to digest the deal before Eric Hoskins started announcing and crowing about his achievement as a set accompli. This is a very bizarre way to negotiate, Alex, to be honest. This isn't even an actual negotiation. Since our contract expired in March 2014, we've been struggling. Doctors in Ontario have been struggling with the Ontario government's unilateral actions. This contract that was handed down from on high feels exactly like another unilateral action. Okay. So we had a take-it-or-leave-it approach. Right. And so what was different about this deal than, let's say, the one that was handed to you guys in the summer that you said overwhelmingly, no, not going to cut it? There's nothing different about this deal. This deal, from what I've heard, I haven't seen the deal yet myself. Um, From what I've heard from the OMA, the Ontario Medical Association, this deal is very similar to what was proposed in the summer. Early analysis suggests that it's, in fact, going to underfund physician services for by about a billion dollars. So it's actually worse than the deal in the summer. Okay. And so the OMA, which represents you guys, said, look, all options are are on the table. What does that mean? A lot of doctors are wondering if this means that the OMA is going to take a stronger stance on job action. We've already begun 
forms of job action, where we have begun to withdraw our services from helping the government put through its Bill 41 patient first agenda. Okay, Bill 41, uh, by the way, does not get nearly enough attention. This is one of those bills that I think everyone should know about. Um, it's very problematic for doctors, but at the core of it, uh, it gets no media attention because it's not all that sexy, but it's a privacy issue. It essentially is going to put people's medical records out there um, and give people access to them, correct? Absolutely. The government is going to be able to appoint investigators. There's no indication of how these investigators will be appointed, why they'll be appointed, and what their qualifications are. But they'll be able to appoint these investigators who can uh, access any premise with 24 hours notice, any premise including hospitals, LINs, family health teams, hospices, um, CCAC, and can access all records including, and and the act specifically says, including personal health information. There is no reason given why this is necessary. Um, There is no reason, uh, there are no safeguards indicated in the act. Worse, these investigators can actually take records off premises. Okay, but let me stop you there. Who are these investigators and why would they need to be in our our hospitals or in doctor care? I have no idea. Are they they government overseers who are babysitting you? That's my guess. All it says is that they're government-appointed investigators. That's what makes the Patients First Act so appalling. A patient health record is, is sacrosanct. Yeah. Doctors' offices and hospitals, they have to go through intense security measures to protect patient health records. And here, some Joe Blow health investigator that's been appointed by the government can come and bypass patient permission to access these records. It just doesn't sit well with any doctor. It makes no sense to me. And it shouldn't sit well with anyone because we saw, uh, you know, when Rob Ford was being uh, treated for his cancer, he was in the hospital. We know that people went into his records and somehow um, they were caught, but they went into his personal medical records. And you can hate Rob Ford all you want, um, but he, like everybody else, deserves privacy. Um, And this kind of says to me that if we're going to have all these people going in and accessing me- medical records, let's say someone has a bone to pick with you, Nadia, or maybe they have a bone oh. to pick with Alex Pearson because they don't like my opinions. Maybe they'll just put my stuff out online or anybody else for that matter. That's the worst case scenario. And that would Or maybe they'll sell it to pharma. And that's you know? what worries me. But yeah. the thing is, one, they have no business going into your records. What could your records say that would help sure. an investigator figure out anything? Like... A, I already report data to the ministry, right? I report the number of PAPs I do. I report the number of colon patients who go for colon cancer screening. I report my hours worked. Why does the government need more information? What worries me the most, the more patients know about this, the less likely they are to tell me anything that goes on their records, especially the really sensitive stuff. I had a, a, one of my friends, um, Dr. Elena Frick, she, she was killed, but she was yeah. allegedly killed by her husband. Mm-hmm. There's question about domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. A lot of doctors have made the commitment to screen more aggressively for domestic violence and intimate partner violence. I've been doing it regularly in my clinic now for two weeks. And it's not that I can solve every problem. It's that I want patients to know that they can talk to me. They can open up the conversation. 
They know that I can help them find resources. They know that I'm there for them. And now that relationship, that trust is going to be uh, sacrificed just for some bureaucratic desire to control everything in healthcare. Why would anyone tell me sensitive details about their lives, even though they know that I want to help if they think that anyone else can see it? Mm-hmm. That's true. Right? And in a small town like Georgetown, where I work, or even smaller towns where I've worked, um, everybody knows everybody. <laughs> the, the risk of sensitive information being leaked is, has huge repercussions on you, not just medically, but socially. And, and not and to mention, it, it makes it easier for it to leak out to pharmaceutical companies who can then make you know pro, uh, a profit off of this kind of information. It's very valuable information. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking to Nadia Alam, who's with the uh, Concerned Ontario Doctors, about this latest deal put forward by the province. And I don't know where you're on this uh, issue, if you're paying attention to it. 905-645-3221, if you want to weigh in on the conversation, maybe ask Nadia a question about this. But I think at the at the very core of this... Um, and I've heard it from my own doctors. And I, I have the greatest doctors. I'm very, very lucky. I love them. They trust me. I trust them. We have great conversations. They know I work in the media, so we often get to talking politics and issues. So that's why I'm kind of, you know, informed on what's been going on. But the, the main concern is that people are waiting longer. We are offering less services. And people are not getting the care that we pay for. And the bureaucracy and the levels of, of paperwork are just continuously increasing at the cost of patient care. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The patient's first agenda, I mean, patient privacy aside, one of the other mainstays of the agenda of the act is to create an expensive, a very expensive layer of bureaucracy in addition to what's already there. We already know that the government is not putting any more funding into healthcare. They've said that they've said as much many times in in legislature. So the idea is that we've got a fixed pot, we've got a fixed healthcare budget pie. If a bigger slice goes to bureaucracy, that's less left over for actual patient services, and that that's just wrong. That's the wrong priority. Yeah, it should look- always be patient services first and foremost. We should have guarantees of care like other countries, right, where everything in healthcare should be targeted towards giving patients the services they need when they're sick, when they're vulnerable, to promote health and wellness. At the end of the day, that's the only reason I became a doctor. And it makes me so mad when I see this happening out in the, with our government, who's supposed to be helping to take care of us. The healthcare system's crumbling, and we have a health minister who's playing games Right. And so, you know, unless you've been in the healthcare system, you really don't see some of the problems. I, I was in earlier this year with a hand infection um, that kept getting misdiagnosed. And, and what really struck me, Nadia, was just, um, you know, you have people laying in gurneys and hallways, you know, they get no privacy. You've got elderly people just kind of languishing, waiting around. Um, the big thing that stuck out to me, which reminded me of e-health, was you know, I had to go to five different hospitals, and not one mm-hmm. of them knew my record. So I had to continuously pull out paperwork um, that really, I thought we just paid a billion dollars to get this whole process streamlined. So w- 10 years later, why am I still having to explain why I'm going to certain hospitals for the same issue? That's the billion-dollar question, Alex. It's, we've all watched eHealth come through. We know that it's possible to integrate health records 
my colleague, Dr. Sohail Gandhi, just wrote about it in the Huffington Post in his area. The doctors themselves have put out money so that they can integrate healthcare records across clinics, with pharmacies, and now across hospitals and nursing homes. They've done this out around Georgian Bay. And I don't understand why the government, with its vast resources, can't do it when the doctors and the community where Dr. Sahel Gandhi works have done it, have been successful. Why can't the government go to them and say, what did you guys do? And can we copy it for the province? Because it truly is ridiculous that patients have to say their history over and over again. And you know, and mm-hmm. I know, every time you say a story, something changes. Because you remember certain things, you forget other things. Or you assume that the person you're talking to knows certain things about you. Maybe and I'm so a little naive, but I very think... very spotty care. Yeah, look, I, I might be a bit naive. I'm not an IT tech specialist. But when I go in for a hand injury, it should be in a database. And then I go to the next doctor. They should go, oh, yeah, you were in here yesterday for this and that. It shouldn't be that difficult. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. So where does the fight go from here? Because, look, we are 18 months away from an election. And there's nothing more uh, Kathleen Wynne would like to do than to make peace with all the unions, make sure all the unions are happy, make sure everyone's happy... Does she care about making the doctors happy, or are you the union that is the sacrificial lamb? I don't think they care at all about making the doctors happy. To be honest, their attitude and their actions so far has shown an incredible lack of respect. I don't need the government to like doctors. I need the government to work with doctors, with nurses, with hospitals to improve the healthcare system. And the fact that it isn't, right? It wasn't just doctors who spoke out against the Patients First Act. Ted Ball, who's a health known, a well-known health policy expert, spoke out against it. Patient care advocates like the Ontario Hospital Association, they spoke against against it. Um, a lot of people, sorry, not the Ontario Hospital Association, the Ontario Health Coalition spoke against it. A lot of people have spoken out against the Patients First Act, and yet the government's still going on its merry way. You're right, 2018 is around the corner. At this point, doctors are so fed up, we're going to sing and sing out loudly about everything that's wrong with the healthcare system and point the finger back, rightly so, at the government and say, you know what, if you're sitting on a wait list for years Mm -hmm. to see a specialist, if you're sitting on a wait list for months Mm -hmm. to get imaging, if you're a dying patient up in Ottawa and you're sitting on a wait list for home care, the finger, the blame goes to the government, because they are refusing to fund and prioritize patient services over bureaucracy, plain yeah. and simple. I, I got to be honest, it's, it's gross, because I just put we just put our stepfather into a, a long-term uh, care facility here in Hamilton, and I got to be honest, uh, the frontline workers are not the issue. They work hard, but mm-hmm. the, the, if, if you've seen long-term care in this province, it's disgusting the way we it treat is. our elderly and the sick. But it's the, it is the issue in the next election, other than hydro, it's health care that are the two main pocketbook issues. So are we going to see you, you know, out on the lawns of Queen's Park at some point, you know, uh, raising some noise? So uh, doctors did stand at Queen's Park on April 23rd. I expect doctors will do so again. I think they'll continue to rally more so. I think doctors are going to be speaking to every single patient that they know, because think yeah. about it. You've got 29,000 doctors working. You've got a bunch of medical students and residents. If every single doctor spoke to each and every one of their patients mm-hmm. and took just five minutes out of every encounter to talk about this issue, 
will rate will will increase awareness. We're going to remind people, you know what? You have power. The government doesn't care about doctors, but the government does care about the 13 million Ontarians out here. Yeah, but but you know though that this will come a, a dollar cents issue, and the province will say, we're you know the doctors already make too much; they make enough, uh, and they they they've got to get in with the times. You you know that this will come down to a dollar and cents issue. Yes, yes, and it certainly will be spun that way, and it'll be our job to remind patients that the only time doctors get paid is when you provide a service. So when you start providing less funding for those services, you get fewer services. This is this is the way. It, the government set up the system, right? Doctors aren't yeah. salaried. We don't get paid to sit around. We only get paid to work. And when we are not going to be paid anymore, that means that we can't provide the service that we actually want to and that we see is needed, right? Yeah. Nadia, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll keep in touch. Uh, we've had you on before, and we'll keep in touch and see, see where this goes. But I want to thank you for coming on. Alex, thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for caring. Oh, yeah, I do care. Nadia Alam is with the uh, Concerned Ontario Doctors. You can follow them on Twitter to see where this goes. But um, she's right. Every time you go to the doctor's office and you sit there, start pointing the finger. You can't get a bed. You can't get a hip surgery. You can't get all these things. you got to look at one person to blame. And that is the premium. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.